Welcome to worship this evening. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 138, verses 1 through 3. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. In the day when I cried, thou answerest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. Our scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 25, and we'll be reading from verses 12 uh, through the end of the chapter. Genesis 25, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bare unto Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, and Kedar, and Adbeel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Massa, Hadar, and Tima are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their towns and by their castles, twelve princes according to their nations. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, a hundred and thirty and seven years. And he gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. And they dwelt from Havilah unto Sur, that is, before Egypt, as thou goest towards Assyria. And he died in the presence of all his brethren. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. And Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau, because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottish, pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee. With that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. 
And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point of, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So far, the reading of, of God's holy and infallible word. This evening, we're beginning a series on Jacob, the liar, the scoundrel. One pastor calls him God's rascal. Now, Jacob is one of the Bible's more intriguing characters. And, and it's very true that he, he is a liar. It's very true that he, he was a cheat, that he was a self-centered schemer. But yet as we read through his story in, in the book of Genesis, somehow we, we find ourselves cheering for him along the way. Well, his story in Genesis, actually I should clarify, it's, it's not really about him. Yes, he plays a, pre- a predominant role in the narrative. But like all Bible stories, Jacob isn't the main character. Sure, it's about the events that occur in his and his family's lives and around him. But we must remember as we go through this, the main character isn't Jacob. The main character of Jacob's story and of everyone's story in the Bible is about the one who is always there. It's about the one who is everywhere. It's a story about the one who is guiding all of the events of history, working out his divine plan of salvation. So that he can be glorified. And so that his people can be saved. And so when we study these stories, it can be tempting to us to only learn moral lessons. To not look at what the Lord is teaching us about himself. To only to learn things to like pray like Daniel. To slay spiritual giants like David. To run from sin like Joseph. Or don't tolerate sin like Lot. Or don't embrace lust like Samson. Or don't serve idols like Manasseh. Now as we look at these narratives, these moral lessons aren't wrong. But they're not necessarily the main idea given, the main lesson given. And in this series, we're going to be looking at some moral and practical lessons that this story teaches us. However, the main purpose of narrative in the Holy Scripture is to reveal to us who the Lord is. It's to reveal to us what He has done and what He will do for the salvation of His people. This is the goal of all of Scripture. As the Belgian Confession says, we believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently 
in it. In this series that we'll be going over the next few months, we'll be following the life of Jacob. And one thing that's going to be immediately clear to all of us is that Jacob is quite the character. All of these words I have already mentioned, he's a schemer, liar, cheat. These are, are very true about him. Jacob has significant moral deficiencies. Very quickly into the story, we see that, in fact, his whole family is what we would call dysfunctional. Isaac, Rebecca, and, and Esau are by no means pillars of virtue. What we quickly find out is that where there is sin, there is always dysfunction. Sin always has negative effects on a person's life. And this is very clear in this narrative. But the overall theme that we see here, the overall point that is being shown to us by this story is, yes, sin is horrible. But the overall theme lifts itself above the nitty-gritty. It lifts itself above the sordid details of this family's life. The overall theme is how the Lord, in spite of them, in spite of everything they do, still remains faithful to His promises. And He accomplishes His plan through the line of Isaac and Jacob. Our sermon this evening is simply titled, God is Always Faithful. And we will be looking at how the Lord was faithful to his promises by answering prayer. He was faithful to his promises in the middle of family conflict. And he was faithful to his promises in spite of sinful hearts. Now this narrative starts off very similar to that of Abraham and Sarah. We have a couple, Isaac and Rebecca, newly married, very much in love. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. But they had a, a very similar difficulty as Abraham and Sarah had. They couldn't have children. So our text shows us Abraham prayed to the Lord that Rebekah would be able to become pregnant. The Hebrew actually indicates that Isaac led them both in prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. A quick read of this text would cause us to think that this was a rapid response to prayer. But if we keep reading, we see in verse 26 that Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth, he was 40 years old when they got married. So that should tell us there were a number of years between when they prayed for children that when their prayer was answered. They, like Abraham and Sarah, had to wait for the promise to be fulfilled. 
Now, if you look in their context, you look at what's happening in and around Isaac and Rebekah, this can be a very hard wait. We read in Genesis 25, beginning at verse 12, we read about Ishmael, Isaac's half-brother. We read about him having 12 sons who have towns and settlements and they're regarded as princes. But here is Isaac, the heir of a great kingdom. And he has no heirs. It seems, it must have seemed to Isaac, that even though Ishmael didn't receive the promises, yet he is the one here being blessed. But unlike Abraham and Sarah, our passage doesn't speak of Isaac and Rebekah trying to go their own way. In fact, our passage indicated that they responded well to this test of faith. They didn't collaborate with a servant to produce children. But they waited on the Lord and the Lord heard their call. And even Rebecca, she, she shows a, a heart of faith here. She experiences the children struggling within her. And how does she respond? Well, she goes probably to her husband and together they inquire of the Lord to why is this happening? These are responses of true faith. In the anticipation of receiving the blessing of children, both Isaac and Rebekah are being dependent upon the Lord. It seems here that they've, they've learned from their parents' mistakes to try and not bend the rules of providence to, to suit themselves and their own ideas They don't try and solve their childlessness outside of God's guidance and aid. But they're trusting. They're trusting that the Lord will fulfill His covenant promises to them. They're believing what He says in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Isaac and Rebekah faithfully waited for the Lord to fulfill his promise. I'm sure they probably had seasons of doubt. Times where they questioned whether the Lord would really give them this child. But we know that the Lord was faithful. We know that he was faithful actually in two ways. He provided them a way for the seed of the woman to continue and he granted Isaac and Rebekah a double blessing, twin boys. Now when we look at Isaac and Rebekah's prayer, We might look at it as simply a desire to have a child, to have an heir. But there's really much more going on here than just their desire to have a child. 
Yes, they're waiting for the Lord to give them a child, but this, this child is much more than an heir to continue their family, to continue their line. This child that they're praying for, this child that they're hoping for, is necessary for their salvation. This child was necessary so that the head of the serpent could be crushed. This child was the seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis 3.15. So therefore, when Isaac and Rebekah hear, when they're, they're trusting in the Lord that, they would, that he would give them a child, it's also an act of saving faith. They're believing by faith that the Lord is accomplishing their redemption by granting them an heir. Because it's through this child, it's through this child that Jesus Christ would be born, where he would come and crush Satan's head. They're trusting here in the Lord for their salvation, that he will give this child to bring about their redemption. And therefore, when they make this prayer, when they come to the Lord and pray that he will grant them this child, they can be sure. They can have all confidence that the Lord will say yes to their request. After all, the Lord has promised it. It's necessary for the Lord to grant them a child to accomplish his redemptive purpose. They can be confident. They can prayerfully wait for the Lord. And they can be sure that he will give them a child. And sure enough, the Lord is is true to his word. He never fails to do what he has planned. He never fails to do what he has promised. And this is our comfort as well as, as we bring our desires to the Lord. We too have redemptive and covenant promises that we can take to the Lord. We know that the Lord hears the cries of his people, that he never turns away any of his children who come to him. And like with Isaac and Rebekah, there are requests that we can ask of the Lord that he will not refuse to grant them. The Lord delights to redeem sinners. And we know from Scripture, He will never turn away any sinner who comes to Him for salvation. The Lord delights to grant our desire to live a holy life. He delights in His child desiring to live a godly life and striving to please Him. He delights in his son and daughter who desires, who strives to put on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He will answer their prayer for holiness. Yes, that might mean bringing more challenges and trials into our lives. But he will grant this request. And the Lord will also grant our request to persevere in the faith. He will watch over his child. He will hear their prayer for help. He will protect and safely bring each of his children to be with him in glory. 
Not one of them will be lost. A hundred percent of God's children will make it through this life and be with their Lord and Savior for all eternity. And the certainty of these prayers, the certainty of these prayers being answered, finds its roots in the character of this God we're reading about today. It's illustrated for us in him answering Isaac and Rebekah's prayer. Because we see this illustrated before us. Because we see this happening here in Scripture. We see a God who gave Rebekah and Isaac a child. We see a God who kept his redemptive promise. We therefore can be sure of his salvation. We can trust the promised child. We can trust the Lord that we can trust the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. God so long ago here answered their prayer. And in so doing, he made possible the redemption of his people. By answering this prayer, he made our redemption possible. He's made possible us becoming righteous and holy. He has made possible the entering of his people into glory. Our Lord is faithful to his promises. And he comes here to us. And he extends his promises to us each time we hear his word. He shows us his character. He tells us of the many times he has kept his word. And experience. Experience will tell each Christian here. that There has never been a time when the Lord has not been faithful. Yes, we find out that we can't trust ourselves. We find out that other people can be fickle. But there has never been a time where a child of God could not completely rely on the Lord. David says it well. He says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. So this is the beginning of Isaac and Rebekah's story. They're off to a good start. They're in love. They're praying together. They're trusting and depending on the Lord. And a promised child came. Not one, but two children. A double portion. But here... Things start to change. At this point, the love, the joy, the peace, it it all seems to disappear from their household. Things started off so promising, so peaceful. But now, conflict begins. Conflict begins in their house. And we see this conflict already beginning in Rebecca's womb. 
The word says, and the child struggled together within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Already, already in the womb, we have Jacob and Esau fighting each other. These two brothers that are, that are so different from each other, who, who don't understand each other, two bro- brothers who are going to be locked in conflict much of their lives. And this conflict won't be limited to the two brothers. It's actually the beginning of, of a hatred of a conflict that would continue for hundreds of years between Jacob and Esau's descendants. Israel and the nation of Edom would, would despise each other. Edom would largely be a vassal state under Israel and Judah. A fulfillment of the elder will serve the younger. But would come to be hated by the Jewish people because of their participation in the conquering and plundering of Jerusalem. But the conflict that we see between Jacob and Esau, it's, it's, it's a picture of a, a much larger conflict. It's actually, a, a, it's, being, it's typifying a much larger conflict. The conflict that Jacob and Esau are in it typifies the oldest conflict. It typifies a conflict that continues even to this day. And this is the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is the ultimate fight between good and evil. And this is the fight that is pictured for us in Rebecca's womb and in the birth of the twins. The conflict that began in paradise continues here. And Satan, even here, will do all he can to stop or disrupt God's redemptive purposes. Satan cannot stop the seed of the woman from being born. He cannot stop the line from continuing. But he will do all he can to disrupt God's plan. And he does this. By doing what he does best. Satan knows that if the sinful inclinations of men are allowed to run rampant, including the sinful inclinations of believers, it will have a dramatic effect on the lives of those involved. Look at what's happening here. The family receives a long-awaited blessing. And although it means their eternal redemption, yet they become miserable. They start scheming and plotting and not trusting the Lord to carry out His plans. Once Jacob and Esau were born, things went, went off the rails. It seems that Rebekah stopped trusting the Lord to grant the promise to Jacob. And Isaac thought his way was better than God's way. 
I know I don't know how much Satan was involved and how much was their natural sinful inclinations, but certainly there was influence here. Because if Satan cannot stop God's plan, he will inject as much sin into the situation as possible. He will attempt in believers' lives to suck the joy and, and love out of their lives. And much like Rebecca, much like Isaac, we sometimes face the temptation to stop trusting the Lord. To trust, stop trusting that he will do all things well. And we begin to rely on our own scheming. We begin to rely on and lean on our own understanding rather than depending on the Lord. But the problem with this, the problem with leaning on our own understanding, the problem of trying to scheme to get, get our own way, this, this always leads to sin. This always leads to unfaithfulness. And therefore, we must be watchful to, to not forget our blessings, to not forget the Lord's care for us, to not forget the Lord's precious promises to us. And this often requires us to fight. This requires us to engage in spiritual warfare. To fight with gospel hope. To fight by hoping in the Lord and hoping in His promises. When everything seems dim, when everything seems to be not going according to plan, when the walls seem to be closing in us, we're called to fight by believing and hoping in our Savior. By hoping in our Sovereign Lord. For as we heard this morning, He is our joy. He is our hope. He is our all in all. And no matter what happens, no matter what we go through, no matter what hurdles Satan throws our way, our Lord will be faithful. He will accomplish His plan. He will and save and guide his children all of their days. And how does the Lord do this? Not usually the way we expect him to do this. The Lord usually accomplishes his purpose through the weakest. And the least expected way. And this is a theme that we see constantly throughout Scripture. We've already seen it several times. God chooses the second born Abel instead of Cain. And then the third born Seth when Abel's killed. He chooses Isaac instead of Ishmael. He now chooses Jacob instead of Esau. But this theme continues. We see it happening with Moses, with Gideon, with David, and with many others. The New Testament testifies how the Lord will use what is foolish, what is weak, the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of his word to spread the gospel, to bring about his kingdom. 
The Lord chooses the weak. He chooses the unimportant. And then to top it all off, what does he do? He makes promises to them that seem impossible to fulfill. Here. He tells in Genesis two couples, Abraham and Sarah, and here in our text, Isaac and Rebekah, who can't have children. He tells them that the impossible will happen. That not only will they have children, but their descendants will be a great nation. And here they are, looking around them with no children. Isaac and Rebekah too. And around them, nations are being grown. A half-brother is having many children. Family clans are growing into nations, and yet their numbers aren't growing. Their faith is tested and no doubt they're wondering, how is God going to make us a great nation? How are we going to be a blessing to all nations? There's already all these nations around us. Well, we face similar circumstances. And the church of God has faced similar circumstances all through its existence. As we look around us, the kingdoms of this world seem so powerful. They seem so numerous. We seem surrounded on every side, doomed to be overtaken by the powers of darkness, doomed to be overtaken by the lies of worldliness. Or where we are now is very similar to how God's church has been throughout history. This is normal for God's kingdom. And this is how he normally works, not through might or power or grand speeches. But the Lord works through his word. His word brought by by weak believers, by weak saints like you and me who who, who don't have any strength in ourselves find all of our strength and our hope in our Savior. He works through people who will be forgotten, who will go through this life and, and no one will remember them. He works through unknown, unknown saints who proclaim the gospel to the world. And though things now may seem dark, Though things now, the promises may seem, there's no way these promises can be kept. Though the, the agents of darkness seem more numerous now than they've ever been. Don't be deceived. The Lord is ruling. His purpose, His purposes will be accomplished. Though the mountains quake, though the oceans roar, the Lord will not be thwarted in his plans. He will save his people. He will keep them. He will guide them to the end. His word is sure. It is powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. And this word will be proclaimed to accomplish the kingdom purposes 
of our God. Therefore, let us hope in our Lord. And as we, we hope in Him, let us also flee from sin. But Satan wants nothing more for us to do than to despair and to fall into sin. The powers of darkness, their desire is that we would embrace our sinful inclinations, that we would become like Isaac and his family did. And one of the amazing things here is even though they fell into this pattern of sin and dysfunction, yet even this did not thwart God's plan. And he even used it for good. And he may do this in our life. But beware, sin always has a negative effect. Though God will work through it, yet it is debilitating in our lives. It will dull our witness. It will bring us into darkness. It will dishonor our Savior. We could be tempted to think that God's going to accomplish His plan anyways. No matter how I act. But beware, don't use this as an excuse to sin. Because if we're thinking this way, if we're acting this way, it should cause us to question if we really know the Lord. If we think this way, it's an abuse of the gospel, an abuse of God's character, and it raises flags as to the genuineness of our faith. Yes, God works through our sin, and he uses evil for good. But we must run from sin with all of our might. Yes, he used what happens as we explore the story of, uh, of Jacob in, in the coming months. He used the sin in Jacob's life for good, but this should never cause us to sin. We need to look no farther than Jacob's life, then Isaac's family, to see the effect that the sin had. They became a dysfunctional family. A family with a tarnished witness. But the amazing thing here, and this speaks so profoundly about the goodness of our Lord. The amazing thing here is that even though they got so much wrong, even though they did so much wrong, yet despite their sins, we see a God who is faithful to them, a God who kept his promises to them. And we'll look at this a little further, but let's... And so the twins were born. Esau, the firstborn, was red and hairy, and he became a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a quiet man who lived in tents. Two very different young men, young men. One gave off the image of confidence and brawn, while the other was more of a homebody. But this family didn't value both of them. Rather, they, they picked sides. Isaac loved Esau because he got to eat of his venison. And Rebekah loved 
Jacob. Here Isaac's love for Esau seems self-indulgent. He loved Esau because he got something from him. But can you imagine the atmosphere of this home? Parents divided. Children vying for their parents' approval and attention. A tense atmosphere with, no doubt, snide remarks, gossiping and, and veiled insults. There's a practical lesson for all of us here, but I, I think especially for fathers. Often as fathers, we're, we're, we are called to set the tone of what our home looks like. And it seems here that Isaac failed in this. As fathers, we're called to lead our families, to love our wives, to equally love our children, to provide for our families, to spiritually guide our families, pointing them to the Lord. This, of course, requires us to be close to the Lord, to to guide our wife and our children through the ups and downs of life, pointing to the hope of Jesus Christ and his gospel. We're called to mediate and solve conflicts, to invite the Holy Spirit to dwell and work in our homes. Or to do this together with our wives. We are to instruct our children in the ways of the Lord. To live a godly life ourselves. And abide by the principles of Holy Scripture. And the whole time we do this. We're not to do this as a tyrant. Using headship as an excuse to serve ourselves. Unlike Isaac who loved Esau because of the wild game he gave him. We are to be like Christ, giving ourselves as a sacrifice for our wife and children. We are to be servant leaders in our homes, constantly witnessing through our actions and our words to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the great servant leader, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it seems very much here that this type of servant leadership was not present in Isaac's home. And it greatly contributed to the sinful behavior of his children. And we see this illustrated in the interaction between Jacob and Esau in verses 29 through 34. Esau returns from doing what he does best. He's been out hunting. And and he's exhausted. He's been gone for a while and hasn't eaten. He says, feed me, I pray thee, with the same red pottage, for I am faint. He even says later here, I am about to die. But Jacob, instead of taking pity on his brother and doing what is right, even right to do to an enemy... Jacob decides to use this opportunity, to use this as an opportunity to take advantage of his brother. Jacob here, he knows, the whole family knows, that he's promised to be the one who will rule over his brother. But he decides to use this opportunity to take his fate into his own hands, to trust to his own devious methods, rather than trusting in the Lord 
to accomplish what he has promised. And here we see the heart of Jacob revealed. Showing us that he is a schemer. That he is a deceiver. And as we explore his life over the next few months, we're going to discover that that this taking his fate into his own hands, scheming and deceiving, this is his constantly go-to behavior. Jacob's determined to make his own way in his life, to do what he wants and to do it his way. And the amazing thing is here is, The amazing thing here is God's incredible patience with him. How God each time is patiently correcting him. That every attempt that Jacob makes, every scheme that he invents, the Lord directs them to have damaging results, bringing Jacob closer and closer to recognizing his need for the Lord. And here Jacob takes advantage of his brother's weakness. He takes advantage of Esau's basic desire to be nourished, to gain strength. But Esau isn't innocent here either. Scripture makes it very clear that he despised his birthright. And when he says, I am at the point of death, it is probably only hyperbole. No doubt he was famished. No doubt he was maybe even feeling weak. But our text suggests that he really was not about to die. It shows us for when after he ate and drank, it says he did eat and drink and he rose up and he went his way. If Esau was so near death, his recovery would be slow. He wouldn't simply rise up and and go his way. We sometimes use hyperbole like he did here. We say things like, I'm starving to death, or I'm so hungry I could eat, eat a horse when we have only been without food for a few hours. No doubt Esau is hungry and famished, but not to the degree that it would warrant him giving up his birthright. His willingness to do so, e- so, to so easily swear an oath to Jacob, that the birthright was now Jacob's, makes it clear that Scripture, in fact, is very accurate and very true when it says Esau despised his birthright. The things of this world, the tangible things of this world, were more important to Esau. A pot of stew was more, a pot of lentil stew was more important to Esau than his birthright. And what Esau is despising here, what he's turning away here, it's much more than the inheritance for the firstborn. Esau is here despising the covenant promises of the Lord. He is despising the coming coming Savior. He's despising the seed of the woman who would come through his family line. What Esau is showing here, he's showing that he has no use for the Lord. He has no use for a Savior who would 
crush the serpent's head. He has no use for the one who would be a blessing to all nations. We read in Malachi 1, and this is a stumbling block to many people. It's also repeated in Romans 9. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. can be hard to understand or come to grips with, and we'll be looking at it a little bit more later, but our text here makes it clear that Esau hated the Lord. That he wanted nothing to do with him. He despised the Lord's way and the Lord's way of deliverance. Esau desired to remain in his sin, and he desired to go his own way. Esau had precious covenant promises, salvific promises that he rejected. But so do we. We too have been given covenant promises from the Lord. We too have been brought into the family of God. We have been baptized in his name and his salvation is freely offered to each of us. Our birthright is redemption through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question comes to us, what will you do with your birthright? Will you despise it? Or will you value it as being more precious than gold, diamonds, and rubies? Will you pursue the false promises that the world offers Or will you pursue righteousness and holiness that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now the fact that Esau despised his birthright here. It doesn't mean here that Jacob valued it greatly. And we'll see this over the next few months that Jacob... A self-absorbed conniver who was always looking out for number one. Who was always looking out for himself. This birthright would become precious to him. He would be, Jacob will will be a a work in progress. A a massive work in in progress. And at this point in the story, he's, he's only valuing it for what it has to offer him. He's only concerned about receiving this blessing and so he can receive the inheritance. He's not much concerned with the spiritual or salvific aspect of it. Here at this time, like Esau, he is still going his own way, planning and conniving to get the best, doing everything he can for himself. And yet as we stand back and look at all of this, we look at this family. We look at Jacob and Esau. It's amazing again to consider the Lord's incredible patience with them in their dysfunction. Despite all what seems to be obstacles put up to thwart God's plans, yet God's plans go on. He remains faithful. He doesn't abandon his people. There's no surprises for him in this family no shocks, no, no unexpected obstacles. 
we stand back and look at this story, we stand back and look at the characters in the story, yes, their sin is depressing. Their unbelief is unbelievable. But there's hope. There's hope here for us in this story. Because we're very much like the characters in this story. A variety of characters. Some of us, many of us are saved. Others the Lord has begun to work in. And sadly others of us are still lost going our own way. Some of us are advanced in grace and come of a, long way, a long way down the road of sanctification. Others of us are beginners in grace. But this narrative reminds us. It reminds us of who we are by nature. But it reminds us that we, we all need the Lord no matter where we're at. We need Him to save us from our sin. We need Him to rule in our lives. We need Him to be the ruler in in our homes. Left to ourselves, going our own way. Without God's help, without God's guidance in our lives, we will descend, like this family, into dysfunction. And maybe... You're already there. Maybe your situation seems hopeless. Maybe sin has already overtaken you. Maybe sin has overtaken your home. God's word today tells you There's hope. There's hope that lies in the covenant-keeping God. There's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ who, who came through this dysfunctional line of people, through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to save His people from their sin. And what the Lord is doing here is He's showing us His incredible patience with stubborn and scheming sinners. He's showing us His determination to accomplish His purposes despite our interference. What a blessing. What a blessing that the Word, the Lord works like this in our lives. We're going to see him patiently work through the life of Joseph. What a blessing that he so patiently patiently guides and changes changes us. This, This gives us incredible hope. This gives you, sinner, trapped in your sin and dysfunction, it gives you great hope. For you can go to the Lord. You can bring him all your sin, all your dysfunction. You can bring him all your baggage. He promises to be merciful and gracious, ready to forgive. He promises to change you. And he's made a way for this to happen. Through the seed of Isaac, through the seed of Jacob, Jesus was born. And he suffered and he died on the cross for our sin. And so this great 
Lord and Savior. He won't leave you in your sin. But he will change you. He will change your life. He will deliver you from yourself. Deliver you from sin and make you to walk by his side. We serve a great and a glorious God. And the more we learn about him, the more we go through his word and we discover more and more about our Lord, His awesomeness, his wonder. Don't you want to know this person who doesn't, you here who are lost in your sin? Don't you want to know this great God? Bring him all of your sin. He is faithful. Amen. Our faithful and glorious Father in heaven, deliver us from sin, O Lord. Change us, Lord, so that we would serve and honor Thee perfectly. And so, Lord, continue to show us Thyself. Continue to Reveal thy wonder to us so that we will rejoice in thee and praise thee all our days. Lord, we pray that thou would be go with each of us this week. We would go out from this Lord's Day, from the fellow from fellowshipping together, from worshiping thy name together, we would go out and that thy spirit would, would work powerfully in us. Bless the events of this week, O oh Lord. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.